Hi, this is David Schwartz. I'm a law professor at the University of Wisconsin, and you are listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. I am very happy to be here today with David Schwartz, who is a professor of constitutional law at the University of Wisconsin, and he has the unique distinction of being my brother. So welcome, David, and it's really great to have you back on the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And uh, the reason I asked you back here today is because we have, you know, a bunch of <laughs> legal questions regarding freedom that that we've been uh, really wanting to have, you know, someone with a legal perspective instead of me just, you know, talking out of my ass and <laughs> which I've been doing all season. And as you may or may not know, this current season we're, is our theme is freedom. And if you could, could you explain to us how the understanding in the United States of the concept of freedom, how has it changed over time? I think the main thing is that the original constitution didn't even have a bill of rights. That was something that was added in the first 10 amendments a year after the constitution was ratified. So the initial understanding of the constitution was that freedom was going to be protected by democracy, basically by, by representative government. And starting with the bill of rights, there was an added emphasis on individual rights, though those didn't really take off until the 20th century hmm. after the kind of uh, the, the crackdowns on dissenters during and after World War One. Really? And then, at, yes. And, and then at that point, the idea of really enforcing freedom of speech in the First Amendment started to take off. And I think that slowly launched a, a uh, a century of progress in developing the idea of individual rights under the Constitution. I I want to know a little bit more about what they were doing during World War One because this is news to me. <laughs> were they the, the government was actually le not letting people talk about the if they were anti-war or pro what 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 was happening? It would be things like uh, locking up people who were speaking out against the war. Oh, wow. uh, on the theory that it would be interfering with the draft. You know, at this time also, you've got the Russian Revolution is beginning. And so we have our first anti-communist Red Scare <laughs> oh, wow. toward the end of World War I and, and the immediate aftermath of that. And so um, the federal government and a lot of states passed laws that would make it a crime to advocate the overthrow of the government and as these laws were being enforced, the First Amendment was used really for the first time as a defense hmm. Wow! against wow. prosecution. 
Interesting. I, yeah, this was news to me. Wow. And my next question for you is which freedoms are actually in the constitution and which aren't. And I, and I'm, and I guess I need to clarify if there's freedoms in, I I want to make sure the constitution actually includes when I talk about, when I say the constitution, I mean the constitution and the amendments to the constitution. Sure. Okay. And I think you're onto something here because I think it's really useful to think about the constitution in two related but different ways. Okay. There's the constitution in writing. You know, it's the text of the constitution that you can pick up and read. And there's the constitution in practice. And and the, by the constitution in practice, I mean how ways that it's interpreted by courts that aren't necessarily written into the text and ways that our cultural understandings about what freedom means in the United States really have life and impact on government, even though they're not written it, written down. Hmm. And so if you look at the constitution and writing, there aren't that many freedoms that are spelled out. Really? Well, yeah, which, so, which ones are, are actually spelled out? Okay, so basically you've got the Bill of Rights. So, you know, you have the First Amendment, which protects free speech and free exercise of religion. A Second Amendment, you know what that is. That's uh, <laughs> the right to bear arms. The, the Fourth Amendment is the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And then, you know, the rest of it is the individual rights that are spelled out are mostly about the criminal law process, the right to trial by jury, the right to be free from unreasonable punishments in the Eighth Amendment. And so a lot of the constitutional rights that our people are really focused on today, such as the right to uh, obtain an abortion, are not spelled out in the Constitution, but they're interpreted in words like liberty that do show up in some of the amendments, in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments, hmm. which guarantee the right to life, liberty, and property, or that those shall not be taken without due process of law. Wow. So a lot of rights in constitutional law kind of get filtered into the constitution or channeled into the constitution as interpretations of that word liberty. Mm. And oh, I also thought like specifically the abortion Roe v. Wade, that case, I thought it also brought in a right to privacy. Wasn't that part of their argument? Yes. So the, the right to an abortion is one aspect of the right to privacy, but the the Bill of Rights, the word privacy doesn't show up in the Constitution. Again, that was an interpretation. Oh, wow. Uh, this dates back to a case in the 1960s when there was a challenge to a law in Connecticut that made it a crime to use contraceptives and uh, even for married couples to do this. Yeah. And... Um, the court said that's unconstitutional because there's a right to privacy. And there were different theories about where that came from. So some of the justices said, well, it's kind of implied because when you look at what the first amendment means, and when you look at, you know, religion, we protect religion, that's kind of a private decision and the right to be f uh, free from unreasonable searches. That's a right that you have 
to privacy in your home. And so that all implies that there's this right to privacy. Well, that theory ended up kind of petering out and it got replaced by just saying the right to privacy is part of what we mean by liberty. Mm. When we say that the government can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. Okay. So they folded privacy into the term liberty at that point. Yes, exactly. And this is also why I have been reading in recent times that if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, like everybody's afraid is going to happen, that's also going to, it's like a domino that's going to fall. And then, and then it's like what you were talking about, the, the right to purchase contraception and the right, and I think even Loving versus Virginia is also like in danger. So interracial marriage a lot of these things, if Roe v. Wade goes away, that all of these other things are going to automatically go away, if depending, I guess, well, on the theory. I don't know. You know, that's a good question. I, I think that having Roe v. Wade overturned is scary enough without thinking about <laughs> dominoes falling or a parade of horribles. I, um, you know, Justice Barrett, during her confirmation hearings, didn't want to commit herself. She, you know, she would not go on record as saying that Roe versus Wade was safe, but she did say that Griswold versus Connecticut, that's the contraceptive case from the, from the mid 1960s. She says, overturning that is very, 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 very unlikely. I, I think she said the word very like five <laughs> or six times. And I think that's probably the case. So I don't think that overturning Roe versus Wade leads to these other things that you're talking about. Okay, But I do think that Roe versus Wade itself is a hugely important right, and that is definitely under threat at this oh, point. Oh, yeah. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. And, and it was it, – in New Jersey, they explicitly you – know, they explicitly wrote a woman's right to an abortion into either – it was either a law or they wrote it into the state constitution because they're – because ab legal abortions in New Jersey, locally in our in my state, are was like hanging on Roe v. Wade, and if that went away, then other things would cause it to not be legal suddenly. So they said, you know what, we're going to just ensconce this in our local laws, so it's not we're not going to worry what the government, the feds do. It's a great example of how our federal system is such a double-edged sword when it comes to rights. So. Sometimes you've got states that are regressive when it comes to rights. You've got the Jim Crow South, for example, historically, and the federal government is more progressive and enacts legislation promoting civil rights. Uh, you have the federal constitution saying, you know, requiring equal protection of the laws, and that makes uh, race discrimination by states illegal. On the other hand, sometimes the states are more progressive, and the example you, you just gave is a perfect example. If if the um, Supreme Court overrules Roe versus Wade, they're not saying abortion is illegal, of course. What they're saying is that states are then free to make it illegal. Yeah. And so you have uh, the state of New Jersey saying, no, we're going to enshrine this right in our constitution. So what it tells us is that a, a lot of the, as a general rule, when there's a a right in the federal constitution, that's a floor. And states can be more protective of rights than the federal constitution is. Mm. And I guess this kind of dovetails 
into my next question. I'm, I was thinking specifically about Florida, the the new don't say gay bill, which is not really what it's called, but it's the one restricting what can be taught in their public schools. And I think Texas recently passed some really shitty things. And I keep thinking, are these not, are these violating the constitution in some way? I mean, can they be challenged on a constitutional basis? That's another really good question. And the, the don't say gay law, which I think is, you know, perfectly descriptive name <laughs> for the law that's being considered. It's, it's an example of this new fad of trying to restrict what can be said in, in public schools. You also have these so-called uh, anti-critical race theory laws uh, in several states that are saying you can't teach anything that's gonna make somebody feel bad about race discrimination or feel like they, you know, that they, that they should feel bad about race discrimination. <laughs> and, and um, you know, so it, these things are all kind of of a piece. And so that's a great question about whether they violate the constitution or not, uh, you know, just off, offhand, it seems like, well, I mean, first of all, they're really stupid Laws. But second of all, not every stupid law is unconstitutional, uh, unfortunately. Oh. But you know, we rely on on the democratic process to you know as a protection against those, and sometimes that doesn't work. But the question then is, it seems you know at first glance like those should violate the freedom of speech, but it's a little more complicated than that because the First Amendment looks very different and works very differently in different settings. Mm. If you had a law that says you can't say gay in a newspaper op-ed or, you know, at a political rally, that would clearly violate the First Amendment. But schools are not 100% free speech zones. That's the issue there. Yeah. Um, the, the rights to free speech exist in schools, but they're somewhat more limited. And so the law isn't completely clear. Mm. Yeah, I, I kind of remember that the it's not a free speech zone, more, it, that it mostly, that in my remembering and my experience, it, it more, it focused more on the students rather than the teachers. And it was a way, I guess, to limit what the students could write about and, and talk about in official school publications. And, and it's like now they've, taken that premise and turned it on to the teachers now. I want you to weigh in a little bit on, because I think, I think specifically that Florida law and possibly the other, the other ones about, you know, the anti-critical race theory <laughs> laws elsewhere, which I haven't been following as closely, that they all have this avenue for citizens to kind of take their there it's like vigilante stuff like the texas abortion law that came that so they're they're like found a loophole is that what this is is it is it a loophole for for these ridiculous laws to get passed and and for them to be to you know to like sue the schools or or make life difficult for these institutions from the pub you know from private citizens so what you're calling the vigilante laws, which I think is a 
good description of them in this particular context have a long history and it's not all mm. bad in, in contrast to you know to other governments you know in spite of what you may think that the federal bureaucracy is relatively small compared to a lot of um, you know to European countries for example and for a long time in our legal history we've had laws that rely on private enforcement and so, for example, somebody who is the victim of race discrimination or sex discrimination in employment, you know, somebody who is sexually harassed on the job, for example, instead of going to the government and saying, please, you know, bring a case to protect me, we have that option. But we also have the option of that person herself can get a lawyer and go to court and bring her own case. Okay. And, and that's sometimes called a private attorney general statute. And so the idea is that when you empower private citizens to enforce the laws, you're doing, you know, if the law is a good one, that's a good thing. You're just going to get more enforcement than if you relied entirely on a government official to bring the case. Well, these recent laws are taking that good idea and turning it to, you know, to evil purposes. That's the problem with some, you know, with effective tools, they can be, you know, they can be used for good or ill. Okay. And so, so now we've got that with um you know with these laws uh, restricting school speech and with this uh the texas abortion law mm. and so it's very problematic yeah well, what is it exactly you know so people um the texas abortion law is kind of confusing and there's been it's hard to kind of read a news story about it and understand exactly in what way it's a loophole oh okay and it's not it's not a way that can overrule Roe versus Wade in itself. It, what it does is it, it simply delays, well, it's, it's, it delays the ability of courts to step in and say the law is unconstitutional. So what Texas does is they, it's, they've got a two, a two prong approach. The first prong is they're going to restrict abortions to, you know, the first 12 weeks of pregnancy or something like that. And then, you know, they'll say, and, and, and anybody who is in any way involved in helping someone get an abortion, you know, can be sued by a third party, you know, who has nothing to do with that case. They just, oh, they, you know, they're, they're going to just enforce the law. So what does that third party lawsuit provision do? What it does is that can't be challenged, that law can't be challenged until somebody brings one of those lawsuits against somebody who, who got an abortion or helped a friend get an abortion or a doctor who advised an abortion or something like that. Well, mm. you know, the problem then is people are afraid of being sued before the case is brought. And so right. it will have this deterrent or chilling effect on people getting abortions even if nobody ever brings a lawsuit because the threat that somebody might bring a lawsuit is hanging over everybody's head. But then you have the US Supreme Court saying, but we can't consider whether this law is constitutional until somebody does bring a lawsuit. So it's a law that has its intended effect without ever actually being put into effect. And, and its legality can't be challenged until it is put into effect. And with a lawsuit. Wow. Thank you for explaining that. I mean, that also, I think, is the kind of, it's it, that's going to have the same effect as the Don't Say Gay Bill. 
you know, that the teachers right. are going to self-censor themselves to avoid a lawsuit from a, from a third party or from a parent. True. I and think. then of course, it, in it, you know, and, and then there'll be plenty of school districts where the school administrators will be more than happy to, to discipline or fire that teacher too. You know, so it isn't just a law that the don't say gay bill isn't entirely dependent on, uh, you know, angry parents bringing lawsuits. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, all right. Um, so let's uh, change gears for a second and talk about a little other different current events. Where do you think things are heading in the current Supreme Court? And if you want to talk a little bit about the Judge Jackson hearings that ended this week, that would be cool too. Okay. As a law professor, I don't have any special insight into how senators are going to vote. I know as much as anybody who reads the newspapers, it sounds like she's going to get confirmed uh, that She'll get the 50 Democratic votes and Susan Collins and maybe one or two other Republican senators. So she will be confirmed. Good. And um, as far as her performance in the Senate hearings, I think she did great in handling <laughs> a lot of provocative, aggressive, sometimes stupid questions that were, you know, political theater. Um, yeah, on the you know grandstanding on the part of uh, Republican senators, she's a high, highly qualified jurist, and you know in in living memory we had somebody like Justice Scalia, who, the late Justice Scalia, who became a highly polarizing figure on the Supreme Court. He was uh, confirmed, I believe it was ninety eight to zero. Wow! And it just shows how you know, that oftentimes these confirmation votes have so much more to do with the current political environment than they do with the qualifications of the particular nominee. Hmm. But, you know, the, the court is destined to be conservative for a long time. I mean, that's the, the unavoidable reality. The, with Justice Breyer's retirement and replacement with uh, Jackson, the oldest person on the court is, I believe it's uh, Sam Alito, who's 73, Clarence Thomas is 71. You know, justices uh, in recent years serve, have typically served well into their 80s. So we'll get, we could easily get 10 or 12 more years of, of the two of them. Mm. Uh, the three Trump appointees are all in their early 50s. We could have 30 years of each of them. So <sighs> that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unless, uh, you know, in the, and we ha also have this, this uh, new precedent. Basically, the, the Republican Senate majority under Mitch McConnell kind of broke the system in which, you know, the, the president gets to not, you know, uh, to appoint a Supreme Court justice, even if it's a president of the opposite party. The Democratic uh, Senate confirmed, you know, all of Ronald Reagan's nominees eventually, just as a uh, same with George W. Bush. But, you know, what we saw in the last year of the Obama presidency was this, this idea that if, you know, the Republicans have a majority in the Senate, they're not going to confirm any Democratic nominee. And so, you know, what this tells us is that it will be difficult to appoint a Democratic uh, justice to the Supreme Court unless 
there is a vacancy at a time when there is a Democratic majority in the Senate and a Democratic president in the White House. That's crazy. That makes me very upset, but what are we going to do? I also recently discovered that apparently for the first 127 years of our country, they didn't go through this whole voting and, and vetting process, that it was sort of just a, a rubber stamp and, and that it was only in, when they needed to confirm Brandeis that they started with this questioning stuff. Is that actually true? Not quite. There, okay. um, there were Supreme Court nominees, uh, nominations have always been political. Uh, there have been justices who have been um, rejected in the past, uh, in the 19th century. Okay. It was a tweet I saw. So, you know, this is why I'm checking. Okay. <laughs> Having said that, like I said, that um, there there wasn't this idea that a majority of one party would categorically refuse to confirm a nominee from a president of the other party. That's new. That's yeah. new and, and very different. Uh, usually some kind of compromise could always be struck. But so, you know, that's, it, it's an interesting oh, oh, question about how, whether this new precedent will just be the new normal or whether it is just a phenomenon, a temporary phenomenon of a, highly divided, politically divided partisan situation that we have, you know, over the last 10 years or so. Yeah. Well, do you think we're going to become less partisan going forward? Well, it's hard to see that in the foreseeable future. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, maybe not in our lifetimes, I guess, <laughs> kind of thing. And, and my final question for you today is, what are the avenues available for making change? And that I'm thinking more in terms of individual action. If you, I mean, I guess, I guess another question would be, do you think that Biden will try to increase the bench? I mean, I, I kind of am doubting that now because I guess if he was going to do that, he would have started already. And are you talking about the Supreme Court bench? Yes, yes, specifically, yes. Right. So there had been there had been some talk about a, a so-called court packing plan. The idea would be to increase the number of justices so that there would be more openings for a Democratic president with a Democratic majority in the Senate. But that idea did not go very far, and I think it would have required a high degree of determination and political will on the part of a bare democratic majority, you know, 50, 50 in the Senate with a tie yeah. vote by the, by the vice president. And, you know, it was, as we've seen with other aspects of Biden's uh, legislative agenda, you know, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema have um, not gone along with a lot of it. They were never going to go along with a court packing plan. So that was really never going to happen, I think, realistically. And it okay. wasn't clear that Biden was um, was particularly committed to doing that. Ah, all right. All right. I was that was my my little fantasy. But I, I do understand, you know, we we had a pandemic and all kinds of other crazy stuff for the last two years. And now there's all this other insanity going on. But anyway, what 
are the things that like a regular citizen can do to help make changes to like fix things, (laughs) fix all of this broken shit. (laughs) I think, I think what's clear is that the Supreme court is not going to fix, fix it as you put it, that the kinds of rights that we've been talking about are not going to be protected by the Supreme court. But I think, as you also seen, that look at what New Jersey did with abortion rights, that it's the Supreme, we shouldn't have to rely on the Supreme Court all the time, that the political process can do as much as probably more than the Supreme Court can to protect rights. They can do it by passing laws. States can do it by amending their constitutions. I, I won't say amend the federal constitution because that is virtually impossible in a highly polarized partisan environment since you need three-fourths of the state legislatures to ratify any uh, constitutional amendment. But yes. <laughs> but laws can be passed. And so there needs to be you know stronger legislative majorities backing up a, a president who is interested in protecting rights. So really that happens through voting and and through protest if need be. Okay. Well, thank you. This was this was very elucidating, and and I appreciate very much your being here today and and explaining our government to us. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's great talking with you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. And I am Robin Renee. You can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan or Instagram at Robin Renee Music and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. And if you're on Discord, you can hit me up as Andrew Genus. And I'm Wendy Sheridan. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Twitter at Wendy Designs, and on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. And on Discord as a Vox woman, because, you know, branding everything the same is really important. <laughs> yeah, I realized that too late, too, but whatever. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, and remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. Send us your questions and we might answer it on an upcoming show. So until next time, be well, mask up, and keep left. You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash leftscape. Thanks for listening. <laughs>